This is an audio version of Strong Minds Should Not Be a Top-Rated Charity, Yet, by Simon M., posted on the 28th of December 2022. This is a link post for an article on simonm.substack.com. Giving What We Can lists Strong Minds as a top-rated, in quotes, charity. Their reason for doing so is because Founders Pledge has determined they are cost-effective in their report into mental health. I could say here, and that report was written in 2019, either they should update the report or remove the top rating, and we could all go home. In fact, most of what I'm about to say does consist of, the data really isn't that clear yet. I think the strongest statement I can make, which I doubt strong minds would disagree with, is... Strong minds have made limited effort to be quantitative in their self-evaluation, haven't continued monitoring impact after intervention, haven't done the research they once claimed they would. They have not been vetted sufficiently to be considered a top charity, and only one independent group has done the work to look into them. My key issues are... Here's a list. The first point. Survey data is notoriously noisy, and the data here seems to be especially so. Next point. There are reasons to be especially doubtful about the accuracy of the survey data. Strong minds have twice updated their level of uncertainty in their numbers due to SDB. One of the main models is, to my eyes, off by a factor of around two, based on an unrealistic assumption about depression. Medium confidence. Next point. Strong minds haven't continued to publish new data since their trials very early on. And the final point. Strong minds seem to be somewhat deceptive about how they market themselves as effective, in quotes, and EA are playing into that by holding them in such high esteem without scrutiny. That's the end of the list. Heading. What's going on with the PHQ-9 scores? In their last four quarterly reports, strong minds have reported PHQ-9 reductions of negative 13, negative 13, negative 13, and negative 13. In their Phase 2 report, raw scores drop by a similar amount. Here's a graph, Figure 3, line graph displaying average PHQ-9 raw scores at each session of treatment intervention versus control groups. And we see a graph here with sessions along the x-axis ranging from 0 to what appears to be nearly 20, and a raw score between 0 and 15. And then there are cat's whiskers for each session showing the range of responses for both the control and intervention, and there are lines connecting up the centres of the cat's whiskers, and we note that the intervention drops off much faster than the control, though both are decreasing over time. And then there's a second graph, figure 3, line graph displaying bi-weekly average PHQ-9 raw scores, treatment intervention versus control group. Once again, we have intervention and control lines with raw score and session axes. And once again, we see the intervention group dropping off, getting lower and lower in raw score, as the control group gradually drops off. And one standout thing about both these graphs is that both the control and intervention groups are dropping off considerably. The author continues. However, their phase two analysis reports, quote, as evidenced in table five, members in the treatment intervention group on average had a 4.5 point reduction in their total PHQ-9 raw score over the intervention period as compared to the control populations. Further, there is also a significant visit effect when controlling for group membership. The PHQ-9 raw score decreased on average by 0.86 points for a participant for every two groups she attended. Both of these findings are statistically significant. That's the end of the quote. Founders Pledge's cost-effectiveness model uses the 4.5 reduction number in their model, 
and further reduces this for reasons we'll get into later. Based on Phase 1 and Phase 2 surveys, it seems to me that a much more cost-effective intervention would be to go around surveying people. I'm not exactly sure what's going on with the Phase 1, Phase 2 data, but the best I can tell is in Phase 1, we had an approximately 7.5 versus approximately 5.1 PHQ-9 reduction from being surveyed, in quotes, versus being part of the group, in quotes. And in Phase 2, we had around 5.1 versus around 4.9 PHQ-9 reduction from being surveyed, in quotes, versus being part of the group. For what it's worth, I don't believe this is likely the case. I think it's just a strong sign that the survey mechanism being used is inadequate to determine what is going on. There are a number of potential reasons we might expect to see such large improvements in the mental health of the control group, as well as the treatment group. Mean reversion, strong minds happens to sample people at a low ebb, and so the progression of time leads their mental health to improve of its own accord. Quote, People in targeted communities often incorrectly believe that strong minds will provide them with cash or material goods, and may therefore provide misleading responses when being diagnosed, end quote. And there's a source linked here. Potential participants fake their initial scores in order to get into the program, either because they mistakenly think there is some material benefit to being in the program, or because they think it makes them more likely to get into a program they think would have value for them. Heading. What's going on with the social desirability bias? Both the Phase 1 and Phase 2 trials discovered that 97% and 99% of their patients were depression-free, in quotes, after the trial. They realised that these numbers were inaccurate during their Phase 2 trial. They decided on the basis of this to reduce their numbers from 99% in Phase 2 to 92% on the basis of the results two weeks prior to the end. In their follow-up study of Phases 1 and 2, they then say, quote, While both the Phase 1 and 2 patients had 95% depression-free rates at the completion of formal sessions, our impact evaluation reports and subsequent experience has helped us to understand that those rates were somewhat inflated by social desirability bias, roughly by a factor of approximately 10 percentage points. This was due to the fact that their mental health facilitator administered the PHQ-9 at the conclusion of therapy. StrongMinds now uses external data collectors to conduct the post-treatment evaluations. Thus, for effective purposes, StrongMinds believes the actual depression-free rates for Phase 1 and 2 to be more in the range of 85%. End quote. The author writes, I would agree with StrongMinds that they still had social desirability bias in their Phase 1 and 2 reports, although it's not clear to me they have fully removed it now. This also relates to my earlier point about how much improvement we see in the control group. If pre-treatment are showing too high levels of depression and the post-treatment group is too low, how confident shall we be in the magnitude of these effects? Heading. How bad is depression? Quote, severe depression has a DALI weighting of 0.66. End quote. That's from the Founders Pledge Report via the Global Burden of Disease Disability Weights. The key section of the Disability Weights table reads as follows. So here we have a table with columns for sequela, health state name, health state lay description, disability weight, and then lower and upper bounds. So now I'll read out each of the sequelae, and then I'll read out the health state name, the health state lay description, and the disability weight. I won't read out the upper and lower bounds. If you'd like to see those details, you can check it out in the post. So for the sequelae, major depressive disorder currently without, asymptomatic being the health state name, there's no data, and then mild major depressive disorder, or major depressive disorder mild episode is the state name, 
feels persistent sadness and has lost interest in usual activities as a lay description, 0.145 disability weight. Moderate major depressive disorder, or state name, major depressive disorder, moderate episode, has constant sadness and has lost interest in usual activities, 0.396 disability weight. Severe major depressive disorder, state name, major depressive disorder, severe episode, has overwhelming constant sadness and cannot function. There's some text cut off there. Disability weight is 0.658. The author continues. My understanding, based on the lay descriptions, I'm not a doctor, etc., is that severe depression, in quotes, is not quite the right way to describe the thing which has a DALI weighting of 0.66. Severe depression during an episode has a DALI weighting of 0.66 would be more accurate. Quote, Assuming linear decline in severity on the PHQ-9 scale. That's again from the Founders Pledge model. End quote. Furthermore, whilst the disability weights are linear between mild, moderate, and severe, the threshold for mild in PHQ-9 terms is not approximately one-third of the way up the scale. Therefore, there is a much smaller change in disability weight for going 12 points from 12 to 0 than from 24 to 12. One takes you from approximately mild to asymptomatic, approximately 0.15, and one takes you from severe episode to mild episode, approximately 0.51 which is a much larger change. This change would roughly halve the effectiveness of the intervention using the Founders Pledge model. Heading. Lack of data. My biggest gripe with StrongMinds is that they haven't continued to provide follow-up analysis for any of their cohorts, aside from Phase 1 and 2, despite saying they would in their 2017 report. Quote, Looking forward, StrongMinds will continue to strengthen our evaluation efforts and will continue to follow up with patients at 6 or 12-month intervals. We also remain committed to implementing a much more rigorous study in the form of an externally-led, longitudinal randomised controlled trial in the coming years. End quote. The author writes, As far as I can tell, based on their conversation with GiveWell, quote, StrongMinds has decided not to pursue a randomised controlled trial or RCT of its program in the short term due to high costs, global funding for mental health interventions is highly limited, and StrongMind estimates that a sufficiently large RCT of its program would cost $750,000 to $1 million. Sufficient existing evidence. An RCT conducted in 2002 in Uganda found that weekly IPTG significantly reduced depression among participants in the treatment group. Additionally, in October 2018, StrongMinds initiated a study of its program in Uganda with 200 control group participants, to be compared with program beneficiaries, which has demonstrated strong program impact. The study is scheduled to conclude in October 2019. Sufficient credibility of intervention and organisation. In 2017, World Health Organisation formally recommended IPTG as a first-line treatment for depression in low- and middle-income countries. Furthermore, the woman responsible for developing IPTG and the woman who conducted the 2002 RCT on IPTG both serve as mental health advisors on StrongMind's advisory committee. End quote. The author writes, I don't agree with any of the bullet points, aside from the first, although I think there should be ways to publish more data within the context of their current data. On the bright side, as far as I can tell, we should be seeing new data soon. StrongMinds and Burke Osler should have finished collecting their data for a larger RCT on StrongMinds. It's a shame it's not a direct comparison between cash transfers and IPTG. The arms are IPTG, IPTG plus cash transfers, and no intervention. 
but it will still be very valuable data for evaluating them. Heading. Misleading? Here's a screen capture. StrongMinds is considered one of the world's most effective charities. Learn why. And there's a badge here that says Charity Navigator. 100 out of 100. Give with confidence. That's taken from the StrongMinds homepage. This implies Charity Navigator thinks they are one of the world's most effective charities. But in fact, Charity Navigator haven't evaluated them for impact and results. Here's another screen capture. It says 100%. Four-star charity. Impact and results is greyed out. Then there's 100% for accountability and finance with a bar that's fully full and culture and community with another bar that's fully full. Leadership and adaptability is also greyed out. And then there's another screen capture titled External Validation. And underneath there is a list with articles and references from various organisations and dates. So, for example, World Health Organisation, June 16, 2022. World Mental Health Report, Transforming Mental Health for All. And there are nine more from the Happier Lives Institute, Inciting Altruism, Founders Pledge, The GiveWell Blog, Effective Altruism Forum, and Stanford Social Innovation Review. Going back as far as 2018. Back to the text, the author writes, World Health Organization, there's no external validation here as far as I can tell. They just use StrongMind's own numbers and talk around the charity a bit. I'm going to leave aside discussing HLI here, Happier Lives Institute. While I think they have some of the deepest analysis of StrongMind's, I'm still confused by some of their methodology. It's not clear to me what their relationship to StrongMind's is. I plan on going into more detail there in future posts. The key thing to understand about the HLI methodology is that it follows the same structure as the Founders Pledge analysis. And so all the problems I mention above regarding data apply just as much to them as FP. The inciting altruism profile, well, read it for yourself. And it's linked here in the post. Founders Pledge is the only independent report I've found and is discussed throughout this article. Give well staff members personal donations. Quote, I plan to give 5% of my total giving to Strong Minds, an organisation focused on treating depression in Africa. I have not vetted this organisation anywhere nearly as closely as GiveWell's top charities have been vetted, though I understand that a number of people in the effective altruism community have a positive view of Strong Minds within the cause area of mental health, though I don't have any reason to think it's more cost-effective than GiveWell's top charities. Intuitively, I believe mental health is an important cause area for donors to consider. And although we do not have GiveWell recommendations in this space, I would like to learn more about this area by making a relatively small donation to an organisation that focuses on it. End quote. The author writes, This is not external validation. The EA Forum post is also another HLI piece. I don't have access to the Stanford piece, it's paywalled. Another example of them being misleading is in all their reports, they report the headline PHQ-9 reduction numbers. But everyone involved knows, I hope, that those aren't really a relevant metric without understanding the counterfactual reduction they actually think is happening. It's either a vanity metric or a bit deceptive. Heading. Conclusion. What I would like to happen is, one, Founders Pledge update or withdraw their recommendations of strong minds. Two, giving what we can remove strong minds as a top charity. Three, Osler's study comes out saying it's super effective. Four, everyone reinstates strong minds as a top charity, including some evaluators who haven't done so thus far. This was an audio version of Strong Minds Should Not Be a Top Rated Charity, Yet, by Simon M., published on the 28th of December 2022. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.